0: Thanks, Paul. I'm mad. I'm an alcoholic. Amen. There's no place like home. Um, my sobriety date is uh, June second, the year two thousand. And uh, whew, I'm a little nervous today. Um, my uh, story. I, you know, I used to think that my drunk log was, you know, funny and exciting and and, you know, the longer I live, the longer I stay sober, I realize that it's really just pitiful and pathetic. And um, because I, you know, I did a lot of drinking alone. And, um, and just it's just filled with a lot of misery. Um, so I wish I could tell somebody else's story tonight, but I'm stuck I'm stuck with mine. Um, I was born in Memphis, so Elvis was my idol growing up, as was my father, Big Wally. And uh, my father was bigger than life. He was about six three and weighed three hundred pounds, and he was the life of the party. And uh, and I wanted to be just like him. And um, you know, some things happened in my life that didn't. You know, they might have formed my personality and. But they didn't make me an alcoholic. What made me an alcoholic is that I was born bodily and mentally different than most people, and I decided to pour alcohol and drugs on top of that, and that's what made me an alcoholic. Um, my father died when I was eight years old. I saw him die of a heart attack, and uh, and that always, you know, was good enough reason to drink and. Uh, and so I nursed that self-pity for a long time, and um, I made my uh, I made my first communion at his funeral. I come from a big Irish Catholic family, and uh, so religion and that emotionalism has always been tied up in my psyche, you know. Um, drinking caused me problems from the very beginning. Um, I, uh, you know, I got in trouble from the very beginning from drinking. When I was uh, 15 years old, I got really drunk and threw up in my bed and, uh, you know, just made a mess and, and my mother was determined that I was not going to be an alcoholic like my father and she would say that, you know, I don't want you to be an alcoholic like your father. And being a good Irish Catholic woman, she stopped drinking in penance for her children who drank too much. I was the youngest of of four children. I was the baby by several years. Um, So, uh, so she was determined that I wasn't going to be an alcoholic. And she told me she was taking me to the dentist one day and she dropped me off at rehab. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we were, we were sitting around the room, uh, you know, in the circle, all these young people and they were telling their stories. And I just felt like I didn't belong there. I, uh, you know, all the things that they were saying were things that I had not experienced yet. And uh, I remember this one girl saying how she loved to pass out, and I thought that's really fucked up. <laughs> but uh, eighteen more years of drinking, and I love to pass out. That's what I, that was my goal. Oblivion was always my goal, and um, and alcohol was always the main course. I'm a I'm a chef, and that's kind of the way I think of things. Is the Alcohol was my main course, but always had lots of side dishes, you know, and, uh, and I spent a lot of time and effort on those side dishes as well, and every drug I took, I took alcoholically, you know, I just, um, there was never enough. Um, I got in trouble when my mother, uh, my mother got cancer. And she had a lot of good drugs around the house, and uh, so I started stealing her drugs because I like to go down. And I mean, if you're going up, I'll go up if that's what we're doing. But you know, I prefer I prefer to go down, and you know, cocaine just kind of makes me want to get in the fetal position and check my pulse. And but you give me some Demerol, and I'm ready to go to Disneyland or something. Like <laughs> that. Um, and you know, alcohol was always there. Alcohol was always my solution for whatever was wrong with me. You know, if, uh, if I didn't have enough pills, there's always some alcohol. You know, if I did too much cocaine, hey, alcohol's gonna fix that, you know. Mm-hmm. Alcohol is what I took to make me okay. It was my solution for living. And I thought that I'm gonna drink forever. That's just who I am. One day I'll grow up and I'll quit taking all this dope, um, but I'm gonna always drink because I'm, you know, come from a big Irish Catholic family and that's what we do. Um, I got in trouble for uh, forging a prescription and uh, and I was, I talked my way out of going to rehab and I was going to therapy and I remember this therapist asking me. Why do you, why are you in pain? Why do you need to take this pain medication? What's hurting you? And I just sat there dumbfounded. I, uh, I couldn't speak. I, I was incapable of being honest is what it was. And I wasn't in enough pain yet. Pain is what brought me to AA. And, uh, but I wasn't, I hadn't suffered enough. I guess and I just wasn't ready to stop Um, the drugs and the alcohol were still working I guess Um, you know I drank um, you know I managed to uh, work my way through college waiting tables and bartending and uh, and we all know what the food service industry is like if you're a budding alcoholic and uh, I got a, uh, when I finally finished college, I got married when I was young. I was 21 and still in school, and um, we stayed married for about seven years, I guess, and I think that she was smart. She realized that she was going to end up being more of a mother than a spouse, that she was going to end up taking care of this drunk loser, and uh, so... Um, when she left, that was when I decided, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go on to the bitter end. You know, I'm just, uh, I had had some, you know, my mother had died and, you know, one of the things that I felt the most guilt about besides stealing her drugs was that, uh, the night that she died, we were all there. Me and my siblings and my stepfather were at the hospital, and uh, and I couldn't stay there, man. You know, I had to I had to go drink, and uh, I woke up the next morning, and uh, and she had died, and I wasn't there with her because I had to go drink, because that's what I do. And uh, my mentor had died as well, and you know I. I went to church ever I went to mass every day until I was like twenty eight years old, and I was trying so goddamn hard to be good, you know I just wanted to be good. I'd put on my coat and tie and look all conservative and uh, <laughs> and I just um, I was trying to make up for being such uh, drunk, I guess I was just trying to uh, do penance for for this bad person that I knew that I was deep down. I would uh, I would go visit this nursing home on Sundays and I would take these uh, ladies' communion and I would be so uncomfortable, I'd be so hungover, sometimes still drunk from the night before and I had, you know, I would have a cooler beer in the car or a bottle and I just couldn't wait to get out of there um, so I could drink and, uh so I had, um, my best friend asked me if I wanted to uh, open a restaurant with him. And I thought that sounded like a good idea. My wife had just left and, all right, I'm going to sell the house and, and move across the country and do that. That sounded like a really good idea. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and for the next five years... I drank and took as many drugs as I possibly could every single day. I um, had this kid that that worked for me, and this is probably the last year of my drinking, and And he asked me, hey, Matt, hey, man, you you party? And it's like, no, man. I drink and I take drugs. <laughs> it's, it's not a fucking party. <laughs> it, was, it was not a party anymore. I knew that... Uh, you know, it was a few years after Chris Farley died, and I knew that that was the way I was going to go. You know, they were just going to find me, you know, naked in some seedy motel, you know, just fucking dead, and um, and I was going to go on into the to the bitter end. You know, and during this time, I uh, I met my my next wife, my next victim. And um, <laughs> and she drank like I did. And I, you know, I tried to hide my drug use, but drinking was out in the open. My drinking, I never tried to hide my drinking. It was in your face. I mean, I owned a bar, and I didn't give a fuck about anything, and so I just, I drank all day long. And um, and so, you know, we were uh, sort of a volatile couple, and we had this long-distance relationship for, uh, for the whole time we were dating and for the first part of our marriage. Um, I lived about 300 miles away and, uh, and I would come home to Memphis you know, once a week or so and spend a few days and then I would go back and was trying to open another restaurant in Memphis where I was from uh, while I was living in Illinois and things just really weren't, weren't working out very well. And uh, I couldn't seem you know, I had to get a life insurance policy to cover the loan that we had taken out for the restaurant, and I couldn't seem to pass the drug test uh, for that and um, so I would uh, I would pack up my car and, and drink the whole way to Memphis it was about a six hour drive, and I would drink and snort cocaine and, and then I would right before I got to the to the Arkansas-Tennessee border there at Memphis, I would take a bunch of pills so I could go to sleep, you know. Elvis was my idol, you know, (laughs) and and I just, uh, and that was the way I was rolling. And um, one day I, I came home from one of those trips, this was after Memorial Day weekend, and I had, you know, the blackout started coming just quicker and more often than they had before. Sometimes I could drink you under the table and drink all day and be fine, and other times I could have a couple of drinks and I wouldn't remember shit, you know? And so I knew what was going on in my body. I knew that my liver was not processing the alcohol like it used to, and that kind of scared me a little bit, but not enough to do anything about it. and so after this memorial day weekend i uh you know it's just you know there are just two or three days there that i just don't remember at all and um and i got home to memphis and uh this was on june 1st the year 2000 and I didn't know that was gonna be the last day that I drank. If I had known, I would have drank some more. No. <laughs> but I, I, you know, I got home and I, I went inside and the first words out of uh, Charlotte's mouth were, um, I haven't had a drink in three days and I don't wanna drink anymore. And I think the first thing I said, well, what about me? You know? yeah. And then <clears throat> the grace of God Stepped in I guess and I for the first time in my life. I was honest, and I said I don't know if I can stop Mm. and that was the first time I had ever been honest about my drinking and uh, So that night uh, I said maybe I'll call my brother Danny tomorrow and Danny had been sober for 10 years at the time. He's still sober today And he's six years older than me. And all I knew was that uh, he didn't drink and he was happy. And he'd been through some shit. And I thought, well, how does that work, you know? And, uh, you know, we didn't really hang out because we didn't have much in common. Um, You know, Charlotte threw a surprise birthday party for me one year you know, a year or two before I got sober and I showed up, you know, two or three hours late just wasted mm-hmm. and, uh, and most everybody had gone home by that time except for my immediate family and I walked in and in my best Frosty the Snowman imitation, I said, happy birthday, motherfuckers. <laughs> and um, nobody laughed, you know. <laughs> and then the next thing I knew, Everybody was gone. I was sitting on the front porch, and everybody was gone. And I didn't remember them leaving, and I didn't really remember them being there. So most of this shit's just hearsay, you know? Because <laughs> um, I don't really remember it. Um, so anyway, that night, uh, I said, maybe I'll call my brother Danny. And, uh, and I said, maybe we should say a prayer. And that is not something that we ever did in our house. and uh, But we were laying there in bed, and we held hands, and we said the serenity prayer. And I don't know where that came from except 12, 12 years of Catholic education. I've, I know a lot of prayers, you know. and uh, And I had read some some novels about AA, you know, so maybe I knew that the Serenity Prayer had something to do with that. But anyway, that's the prayer that we said. And the next morning I called my brother Danny. And I said, will you meet me for coffee? And he said, "He said, yeah, sure. And so we met for coffee and, and uh, I told him what was going on and, and he explained to me the doctor's opinion so we sat there in Panera Bread in Memphis, Tennessee, and he said, uh, he explained to me about the physical allergy and the mental obsession and the spiritual malady and, uh, and a little bit about the solution. And I mean, he didn't have to tell me his story because I was there for it, I knew his story. And he said, you know, there's a meeting right down the road. If you want to go, I'll take you. And if you don't like it, I'll never mention it again. And that was a great gift that mm-hmm. he gave me. He said, you know, if you decide you want to drink, I'll, you know, I'm never gonna bring this up, but, uh, but if you want to do it, I'll take you. So he took me to uh, a 10.30 a.m. meeting, and uh, it was a room kind of like this, had some tables around the edges, and all these people were laughing, and they were hugging, and they seemed really happy. And I wanted to die, um, you know. I wanted to die every night. I, uh, you know, I would drink and take pills and snort cocaine and just pray that I wouldn't wake up. And uh, and some nights I would pray that I wouldn't die, you know. And I would lay there and check my pulse, and that's fun. Um, I uh, so there I am in this AA meeting and. Um, and everybody's happy, and everybody's going around and telling their stories. And I can relate to what everybody says. They were telling my story, and this man looked at me and said, You never have to drink again if you don't want to. Even if you do want to, you never have to drink again. And the tears just started. And I think I cried for the first six months. You know, I, whenever they would read the promises, I would just fucking start blubbering. You know, I, would just, I couldn't believe that those would ever possibly come true for me. I uh, so after that uh, that meeting, um, during that meeting, I, I introduced myself. I said I'm an, and I'm an alcoholic, and um, and this feeling of peace came over me and I knew I was in the right place I was given this gift of desperation I was teachable for the first time I was in enough pain that uh, that I was willing to do whatever I was told to do in order to never feel like that again because I was miserable and depressed and um, I think you know we all You know come in here sad and then we get angry or some sometimes we come in here angry and then we get sad and then we start working the steps and these tragedies kind of become comedies you know (laughs) the things that we were crying about after a few weeks we find ourselves laughing about them and that is a beautiful miracle of AA and that's been that has been my experience but I cried a lot and um, there was this guy named Gary who shared, it. I don't remember if it was my first or second meeting, and, and he was crying because he was so grateful. He had gotten a birthday card from his daughter and he was like three or four years sober and, uh, and he was so grateful that he was crying. And I thought, that's what I want. I wanna be so goddamn grateful that I'm crying in an AA meeting. And uh, I didn't know he cried at every meeting he went to. <laughs> he, was kind of, he, was, he was kind of weeping. But, uh, but I asked him to be my sponsor. And he, was, he was the perfect sponsor for me. I mean, I rem- he knew just how what to say and how to handle me and how to take me through the steps. And I remember uh, I was a couple years sober, I mean, a couple of weeks sober. And, uh, and I was working at, at my bar, restaurant, and a lot of my friends were in there drinking. And I called my sponsor, just like I'm supposed to do, and, and told him, you know, what was going on. And I really wanted to drink. And he said, well, go ahead and drink then. And I'm like, well, fuck you, man. I'm not going to drink. <laughs> So, we got busy working the steps, and one of the things he told me to do on the first step was write down how I'm powerless over alcohol, and how my life is unmanageable, and uh, and so I did that. I filled, you know, I had a yellow legal pad, that um, and I just uh, and I just started writing, and he said, now, you know, the next time you want to drink, just pick that up and read it. And, uh, and that worked, you know, I didn't even have to read it. I just had to look at it. It was sitting over there (laughs) next to my bed and I would think about drinking and I would look over at the, at the yellow legal pad there and remember all that shit that I wrote on it. Cause I mean, I skipped over a lot of my drunk along just because it's so pitiful, but you know, there was this one story on there was I, uh, I came to and there were like these four frat Boys beating the shit out of me with a baseball bat and trying to rip the doors off of my car. I had gone home earlier that night to my parents' house. I was just a teenager and I was trying to get my key in the door and I I couldn't get my key in the door so I said, fuck it, I'm gonna go back out. And so, and then the next thing I know, I'm getting the shit beat out of me. I don't know what I said to those guys that made them so angry, but I'm sure I said something. You know, my let my alligator mouth overload my hummingbird ass, <laughs> uh, because I become dangerously antisocial sometimes when I'm drinking, and uh, and it's not pretty, and it's really, I'm glad that I can laugh about it now. Um, so where was? I? Oh yeah, step 1. <laughs> <laughs> step one yeah. So we uh we got to uh to step 2 and he said I want you to always have a dictionary with you when you're doing when you're reading the book and working the steps cuz you think you know what words mean but you really don't. And so came to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity. He said look up the word calm. I said okay. So it's, that means to move towards he said so you're just moving towards this power i don't want you to mentally masturbate over who you think god is or any of that he says i just want you to move towards this belief that there is something that can restore you to sanity he said now i want you to take that yellow legal pad and write down how you're insane and so i wrote down you know more crazy shit than i did you know and he said, uh, he said after uh, I was sharing that with him, he said, well, the craziest thing you ever did isn't on there. And he said, the craziest thing you ever did was that you picked up alcohol, knowing what happened last time that you drank. He says, that's the insanity of this mm-hmm. disease. That's what the insane stuff isn't all the crazy shit you did. It's the thinking that led you to take that drink. And then... Um, we got busy on the third step, and he. Um, we went to this park, and uh, we knelt down, and we held hands, and we said the third step prayer together. And then we sat this, on this bench, and he showed me how to do a fourth step. He said, what I want you to do is, what you're doing here on step three is you're just making a commitment to work the rest of the steps. And our will, making a decision to turn our will, so that's, that's your thoughts. You're turning your thoughts and your lives, that means your actions. So you're turning your thoughts and your actions over to the care of this God that you don't understand. And right now you're just making a commitment to work the rest of the steps. So he showed me how to do the columns, which is one of the most important things that he ever showed me was how to do a four-step correctly and I don't know how thorough I was but I was thorough enough and uh, but I kind of procrastinated on that and uh, and like I said he always knew just what to say to me uh, because he would say he'd ask me how it was going and asked me if I had done any writing and I said well you know not really he said, well you can stay miserable as long as you want <laughs> it's like okay, motherfucker. Um, and that was always enough to light a fire under me and to get me to do the work. And that four step pretty much just kind of poured out of me and you know, like a night or two. You know, I just uh, it all just kind of vomited itself out on the page and and I made an appointment with him to to sit down and, and do my fifth step and and I found myself dumbfounded again unable to open my mouth and uh, and so he started he started sharing some things about his story and uh and that just opened me up and i was able to just vomit it all out and uh and to get free of all that garbage that had poisoned me all those years and um and we talked about doing the, the sixth and seventh step, and he you know told me to, to go home and get quiet and uh, you know to read that passage in the big book and make sure I hadn't skipped over anything. And he said, "Now remember, God may choose to keep you an asshole a little bit longer." <laughs> and, uh, and he was right <laughs> You know, I didn't come in here and get good. That has not been my experience, and I'm glad I didn't have to get good in order to come in here. You know, I didn't have to make a pledge. I didn't have to get baptized or sprinkled or dumped to come in here, you know? I just had to destroy my life first. And uh, so, you know, I, I did those steps and uh, and then we Started working on my amends list and I did my a step list and I shared it with him and he said uh, You know, you don't have to pack up your car and go find these people right now So what you need to do is pray for the opportunity and the willingness to make these amends and started, so I started praying for that every night, and people started coming out of the fucking woodwork. You know? <laughs> I would I couldn't go anywhere without running into somebody. I had to make amends to, you know. <laughs> Ran into my ex-wife at the video store. This was back when we had video stores. And, um, and he said, you know, it's too late to be a, a good husband, but it's not too late to be a good ex-husband to her. And uh, so I started making the amends and the miracle started happening. And my, you know, my life had imploded. I was so small when I got here. I was so isolated and alone. And my life started to fill up. You know, I walked in here with this hole inside of me that nothing could fill up, carrying this 100 pound boulder, all this garbage that I'm carrying around. And I started working those steps, and that, that hole started to fill in, and I started chipping away at that boulder, you know, and it became lighter. And one of the first things that he told me to do was do something kind for somebody today and don't tell anybody about it. because he knew what my problem was. My problem is that I'm self-centered, and the only way to treat my spiritual malady is to get out of self and to do things for others so I started doing that and um, and my life started growing I started uh, you know I I sold my uh, I sold the restaurant and started another business and I started to become really successful and uh, you know my you know, my wife got sober at the same time. When uh, you know the day that I got sober, I, and uh, Memphis they don't give out medallions like this; they give out poker chips. So I had this white poker chip was my surrender chip. And after my first meeting, I went and showed it to my wife, Charlotte, and she's like, "What the fuck is that?" And I said, "That's a uh, that's a surrender chip, and you're getting one tonight." And, uh, <laughs> and so I took her to her first meeting, and. Neither one of us have had a drink since then. Um, wait till you hear the rest of this. <laughs> uh, this is a cautionary tale. It ain't no fairy tale. Um, you know, but, but shit was going good. You know, life was really going good. We had we had children. You know, I've got two sons who've never seen me drink, and. Um, and I didn't know it at the time, but I was making success and money and prestige my higher power. And um, we, uh, you know, I was, this is right, this is before the uh, real estate bubble and I was buying all these houses and uh, you know, I wanted to be this big shot and uh, and then we took a geographic. We moved to Colorado and I opened a restaurant there and then the bubble burst and, uh, and I lost everything and I found myself for the first time failing at something. I had never failed before in a big way like that with a family that was dependent on me. And like I said, I didn't realize that I had made these things my higher power because, you know, I belonged to a club, I drove new trucks, and, and I thought I was a big shot. I was suffering from big shot-ism. <laughs> and, um, and then, uh, you know, this restaurant that we had there in Colorado was really struggling. It was not a good business decision to open that, um, but I really thought that everything I did was gonna be a success because I'm sober now, right? And um, and so I, I got an offer to move to Austin. This is in 2010, I guess. And I'm about 10 years sober, and my life has taken a turn for the worse. And you know I, was, I remember hearing in meetings anything you place ahead of your sobriety, you're going to lose. And, uh, and there were some things that I put ahead of my sobriety. And one of them was that, uh, that success, that prestige, that uh, money and, and, um, and also did the same thing with my marriage and that relationship, you know? The book in the 12 and 12 talks about how we make demands on the people that we love and, uh, and I was making unreasonable demands because I wanted my wife to just make me okay, you know? That's what I wanted alcohol to do. And that's what I wanted her to do. And there's nobody in the world that could ever make me OK. You know, if any of y'all want to give that a shot, my number's 512. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I uh, we moved to Austin. And uh, and here I am working for someone else. Right? I, I had been self-employed for a long time, and now I'm having to swallow my pride and go to work for someone else and I had a chip on my shoulder and I was um, you know I wanted to be king I didn't want to be a worker among workers or a friend among friends I wanted to be the one and um, and so you know I did okay for a while and then my you know started having trouble in the marriage and I just kind of lost my mind I sort of had a nervous breakdown. Just started having these headaches that couldn't be explained and, you know, ended up losing that job and then I got another one and sort of the same pattern was, was unfolding and, and I wasn't going to meetings. Did I mention that? I quit going to fucking meetings. Um, I would maybe go to one a year and pick up my medallion or if my ass was on fire, I'd go to a meeting here and there and I might whine and bitch and be in self-pity and, but I never once thought about being of service to anybody. And um, so I, things got, things got worse. And, uh, and you know, I was, uh, I was social distancing before that was hip slick and cool, you know. <laughs> I was isolating and I was depressed and I was just as miserable as I was when I was drinking. Just a little hope for the newcomer. <laughs> um, so I got to this point um, in January of this year, where uh, I was sitting on the kitchen floor crying. It was uh, January eighth, and I uh, hadn't had a drink in you know twenty-two years or whatever, and but I was fucking miserable. And I wanted to die, and I was sitting there on the floor thinking, this can't all be my wife's fault. Mm. <laughs> and um, and so I thought, well, maybe I'll go to an AA meeting tomorrow. Right? So my intention was, <coughs> I wanted to go to a big crowded room like this where I could hide in the corner and not say anything. And I went to this afternoon meeting and there are like three dudes there right out of rehab. And, and they've got three and four and five days. And, uh, and so I have to share. And I just, I was, I told the truth told the truth about where I was and what was happening. And so, of course, one of them came up to me after the meeting and asked for my phone number and asked me to be a sponsor. (laughs) And I thought, sure, I'll give you my number. I know you're never going to call me, but, you know, okay. And I said, won't you meet me here again tomorrow? I had a commitment. Mm -hmm. I had to go back. Mm -hmm. I couldn't hide. I had to go back. So I went back the next day. And then I said, okay, well, where are we going to go to a meeting tomorrow? And so we started going to meetings, different places in town. And we fairly soon after that found ourselves in this, in this meeting. And there really is no place like home, you know. Um, I, uh, I started uh, to do things that I was told to do when I was new. I started treating myself like a newcomer, and I, uh, you know, I got commitments. Um, you know, there's a, a man that uh, his car wasn't running, so I said, you know, I'll pick you up and take you to a meeting. There I go. I got another commitment. You know, it kept me coming back, and uh, and then you know I got a few other sick men who wanted me to be their sponsor and um and you know one of them uh called me you know this has been a few months ago and he says you know i've got to be out of my house i'm going through a divorce and uh and i don't know how i'm going to get through it and i said well i'm going through the same thing and i don't know how i'm going to get through it but we're going to get through it together and that's what this deal is, man. We just get through this thing together. This is um, There's that, uh, that story in the big book about the Mi'kmaq Indian, and the most sincere prayer he says when he finds himself all alone is, okay, buddy, it's just you and me. And, and that's the way I feel right here, right now. It's just you and me, and I'm okay right here, right now. And I thought that, uh, you know, when I start, I started going back to meetings and, you know, I've been to a meeting every day just about since then. And, uh, and then my wife started going back to meetings because we have lived sort of parallel, enmeshed, depressed lives together through our sobriety and our dry time. And so she started going to meetings again too and working the steps and getting a sponsor and doing all those things and I thought this is going to save our marriage you know this is it you know now that we're finally back on track you know because i've known that i've been suffering from untreated alcoholism i knew that that was what was wrong with me i read this book called lost connections and this guy was talking about the one of the cures for depression is community and service and I thought, huh, I used to have that when I went to AA. <laughs> nah, I don't need that. <laughs> I don't need that, you know. But uh, but it was just a kernel planted there. And, and so um, so I thought, yeah, this is, you know, things are going to fall into place now. But, uh, but my wife found her truth. And it was she didn't want to be married anymore. And um, so she told me that a few months ago and uh luckily i was in the herd luckily you know i've been in austin for 13 years but in the last nine months i've made more friends than i ever have in my entire life and um And I feel, and even though my marriage has ended, I feel more loved and cared for today than I ever have because of this program. And so she told me that and I didn't lose it. I didn't let that destroy me. I had to honor that because she's one of the most honest, honorable people that I've ever known. And she was telling me her truth. And so because of our financial situation, I couldn't just leave. I couldn't just go get an apartment. We were stuck, you know, until the end of our lease. So we lived like three months with this, you know, this thing knowing that it's ending, and uh, that's God doing for me what I can't do for myself. I could not have fucking done that to save my life. And, um, and we did it with some grace. And we did it with some kindness and love. Maybe not the kind of love that I wanted, but, uh, but we got through that. And, um, and you know, she, right now she's packing up the truck and moving back to Memphis in the morning. And I'm okay, you know. I'm alone, but I'm okay because I have this program and because I have commitments, and because I have friends, and I work these steps, and I fuck them up, and that's okay. That's what, you know, that's a beautiful thing about step seven, I think, that uh, these character defects are going to be there forever. And I have the tools today to deal with those. And, um, when I'm disturbed, I can ask my higher power that I don't believe in most of the time, (laughs) but I can ask him, what is it in me that if you removed, I would not feel this disturbed anymore? And it's usually fear and pride. And if I can get out of the way and do something for somebody else, then I can be free and I can have some peace in my heart, which is um, unbelievable, really, to live with some peace in my heart. I think that's what I always wanted. I thought I wanted that charge, that excitement, that adrenaline, but what I really wanted was just some peace. And I have found it in here, and I'm grateful for that. about the only thing I did right during those years that I wasn't going to meetings was I never stopped praying. I always every morning I would say the third step prayer and the seventh step prayer and and I would do the you know all the stuff in the eighties right the, direct my thinking and uh and and say oh, I never stopped doing that, but I was still isolated you know it's funny I met uh I met Tom in here, and we have a similar story and it turns out we lived four doors down from each other for years and never even met because we were dry, drunk, isolated, miserable alcoholics, you know and um, and I'm just so grateful today. I appreciate uh, Paul asking me to speak again if you heard me a few months ago I'm I apologize, you had to sit through that again. And um, so, thanks for letting me share tonight.